Hello, and welcome back to the Rice Historical Review's Cast from the Past podcast. The Rice Historical Review is Rice University's peer-reviewed undergraduate research journal dedicated to furthering the future by promoting the past. My name is Grace Stewart, and my partner, Annie McKenzie, and I are your podcast co-host for this semester. I'm here today with Rice seniors Oliver Hatsiera and Joseph Flores, who are currently in the process of writing their senior theses in history. So, to start off, can one of you explain what an honors thesis is? Hi, I'm Oliver. Um, Absolutely. So, an honors thesis is a year-long project um, that you can do as part of the history major at Rice University. And so it begins roughly in March of your junior year uh, when you have to submit a research proposal, select an advisor, and then over the course of the summer, you begin doing your research. And throughout the year, you will write a roughly 75-page long paper, usually around three chapters based on primary source materials, answering an original question, and proving whatever your thesis may be. Awesome. Okay. So how is someone selected to write an honors thesis, or do you apply? How does that work? Hi, yes. Um, My name is Joseph. I'm excited to be here with the RHR. So there is an application process, and of course, I would always urge you to go and look um, online to see what the application materials that you ought to submit are. But there's two main things I would say. The first is a project proposal, which I believe is a four to five page long uh, just discussion and or summary of what you think you're going to argue and what you're going to discuss in the thesis. Of course, you're not going to know until you reach the archives what you're going to argue, but nevertheless, you can put together, for example, a literature review where you can discuss at least what interventions you're going to make in the research. So if you notice, and you know this is something that you would work on with an advisor, of course, you have to consult them before, see what they think, if they're willing to sponsor you for that, for, for your thesis, find the relevant literature, discuss where you think there are holes, and look to see how you would address them. And the easiest way to do that, and at least it's not easy, easier said than done, but how most people would say is, you look for a gap in the literature, then you find an archive that has the primary sources, and you see the ways in which those primary sources can address the the gap in the literature. So for example, my project is on the Central American Solidarity Movement, and previous scholars have discussed religious faith-based actors in the movement. What I found online is that in Los Angeles, at the California State University, Um, Los Angeles archive. There was an archive created in 2017 with materials that I had seen were not written about in in the previous historiography, so I decided to go there, which leads into the second thing that you need to prepare, which is a proposal, uh, a budget proposal for you to travel and do the research. So the history department graciously uh, granted me a nice sum of money to travel to Los Angeles, and I was fees were covered for the uh, Airbnb, for the flight, for food. It was it was a great trip, and you have to prepare step by step. You know what what expenses you foresee you know a- occurring. Now, of course, it's, it depends for everybody. Like I think Oliver, for example, his archives were in Washington D.C., and he's he lives close to the area, so. That, that budget looked a little different. Me being from Houston, Texas, flying to Los Angeles. Um, I would always recommend you pick an archive 
that's in a place that you'd want to go to. Now, sometimes that doesn't always work. So, for example, I know Oliver is discussing um, a Wisconsin senator. If he really wanted to go to Wisconsin, that's up to him. But for me, I picked an archive that was relevant to the research and applied to me, which happened to be in Los Angeles, uh, which is a nice, cozy place. So you, you, pick, <laughs> you pick the places that you want to go to. So, yeah, in some, you have to create a proposal and then a budget. And, of course, there are always other little documents like a transcript, but you can look all that up on the website. Great. Thank you both. Um, and so I understand also that you have to enroll, I think it's both your senior fall and spring semesters in the uh, thesis writing seminar. Um, so how is that organized? Who teaches it? How many times a week do you attend? Kind of what does that look like? Absolutely. So I'm happy to talk about that. Um, so we have weekly meetings. Last semester is Wednesday night. Uh, this semester it's Tuesday night. And we meet with our professor, Dr. Laura Correa Achoa. And so she supervises the program. And so the process is rather spread out. And it initially starts a little slower to help you ease into the research process. So typically, students come in with a bit of research exposure uh, by the time they arrive on campus in the fall of their senior year. Uh, I think Joseph definitely had more of that experience than I did. But there's ample time at the start of the semester to get up to speed. And so we begin with a number of smaller projects to help you start thinking about your research and what you want to argue. So one of the first products that you must deliver is a prospectus, which is a 10-page document, essentially outlining what you propose to argue, where you will retrieve this information from, and how you plan to act moving forward um, to expand that argument. And so after that, begin writing the first chapter. And so this begins with a brief outline of what you propose to argue. And there are various projects to help you develop your initial chapter, such as a primary source analysis, for example, um, that were relatively easy to integrate into our respective chapters. And ultimately through various rounds of drafts that we review together and offer peer feedback on every single week, we crafted our first chapter. And then we repeated that process roughly along those lines for the subsequent two chapters. And so we are actually will be submitting a revised version of our final chapter today uh, that we'll be reviewing tonight together. <laughs> and hopefully the feedback session goes well. So you typically write a one chapter and a revised prospectus in the first semester. You will write your subsequent two chapters typically during the second semester. However, most candidates choose to write the majority of their second chapter over winter break to make the writing process easier during the spring. And so we have now arrived at the stage where we have three chapters written. We have a revised prospectus that is intended to be transformed into an introduction for our paper. And then we have to write a conclusion, which will likely be relatively brief, perhaps five pages, um, to append to our work. And so we have now arrived at the point in time, we'll take us through the next few months, where we revise our work, where it's reviewed by various committees, we receive feedback and update our work and ultimately submit a final product in April. Wonderful. Thank you. That is a really great, really great answer to that question. Okay, so now that we, we kind of have a background about this, uh, the structure through which you write your theses, um, I wanted to give each of you an opportunity to give a summary of your research, to uh, let, let the listeners know kind of what sources you're looking at, what's your big research question, and, and um, the personal connections or the reasons which you chose your topic. So either of you could go first. Yes, so... As someone who's attempting to go to graduate school for to study Latin America, I wanted to look at a project that involved Latin America, but at the same time I had some familiarity with. So 
in my two years at Rice University, I've examined social movements in the U.S., especially in the civil rights era. And so I wanted to somehow combine the two and in, in, in together. And so what I came across was the Central American Solidarity Movement, which occurred mainly at its height in the 1980s. And it was an anti-imperious movement of activists across the U.S. who attempted to stop U.S. intervention primarily in three countries, in Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Guatemala. And my project investigates the transnational activism that opposed U.S. intervention, and I use sources that I found at the archive that I previously mentioned, California State University, Los Angeles, and using those primary source documents, most of them came for what the literature refers to and what they called themselves as solidarity networks, which were coalitions of activists that had chapters in different cities but had an umbrella organization at the national level. But in my research, I discuss a group called the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador called CISPIS, in which they had one national headquarters at Washington, D.C., but they also had chapters in San Francisco, in New York, in Vermont, uh, Burlington. And so these coalitions of activists, I argue, in regards to what the previous historiography has discussed, differ in how they go about their anti-imperialist critiques. So the previous literature has discussed how faith-based, faith-driven actors, uh, many of which were Catholic, subscribe to what the research calls as liberation theology, which is this idea that Christians are called to help their co-religionists. So uh, Americans, people in the United States, felt called to help the Central Americans um, who were fighting uh, governments that were backed by the U.S. because they, were, they had um, similarities in religion, they believed the same thing, and they both followed what many of these Christians would say, they both followed Christ. And so I argue that the Central American Solidarity Movement facilitated a space for multiracial organizing and at times black internationalist politics. So I carry out my project in three chapters. In the first, I explore the anti-imperialist critique and black diasporic politics of black feminist and queer poet June Jordan. June Jordan was a poet who wrote throughout the civil rights era, was looked up to Martin Luther King, was, had, had a, a working relationship with Malcolm X. They were constantly idea, in, in, in dialogue with each other and trading ideas. And I talk about her trip to, Nic to Nicaragua, the political imaginings behind the trip, and why she met with black and indigenous women in the region. And she reported on all this in Essence magazine, which is a magazine created um, uh, specifically for African-American men and women. And so I discuss why she published in essence and how essentially she uses Nicaragua, which had the Sandinistas, which were a revolutionary movement, as a way to inspire African-Americans in the United States. So while also being anti-imperialist, she was empowering African-Americans in the U.S. The second chapter discusses the coalition building of the politics in the movement. So, for example, I, I focus on Jesse Jackson and how he attempted to build a coalition, a rainbow coalition that involved African-Americans, Hispanics, um, poor whites, and a, and a slew of other groups. And so he joined the movement to help his presidential campaign to also maintain an anti-imperialist stance, but to broaden the support of his movement. And in the third chapter, I discuss the labor politics 
and how um, Americans in the United States, unions and workers, oppose U.S. intervention in Central America, not only because they saw it as as wrong and and morally saw it as morally wrong, but they also made the case that by being anti-imperialist, they could help their working conditions in the U.S. So overall, I discuss how the Central American Solidarity Movement facilitated the space to where actors in the U.S. could make claims about their own situation and to make their own critiques, and which why I called the, the, the thesis the politics of race, ethnicity, and class, which is to say that by examining the ways in which imperialism disproportionately harms what they would believe are, are people of color in the third world, they also see some similarities undergirding their respective oppression, whether that be um, white supremacy. In June's Jordan case, she critiqued as sexism and heteronormativity, and as, as the laborers would say, labor exploitation and class exploitation. So yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Um, okay, Oliver, could you give a summary of your research? Absolutely. So my research concerns uh, two key figures in the progressive movement, Theodore Roosevelt and Robert La Follette. And so the progressive movement was a movement that arose in the early 20th century, um, and it endeavored to respond to challenges that arose due to the rise of industrial capitalism, which had consequences for workers, uh, for business more broadly, and for democracy in the United States. And so Theodore Roosevelt is a key figure in this movement who represented some of its more conservative elements and has a very prominent career. Most notably, he assumed the presidency upon the assassination of William McKinley, president for nearly two full terms. And in 1912, he was the presidential campaign for a seminal party known as the Progressive Party, also colloquially known as the Bull Moose Party, which launched a third party bid to challenge the conservative Republican William Howard Taft, as well as Democrat Woodrow Wilson and Socialist Eugene Debs in that election. La Follette is a lesser known politician, but extremely important within the progressive movement. Rather than from an industrial state of New York, as Roosevelt was from, he was from an agricultural state, uh, Wisconsin, and thus had significantly different concerns as he approached progressivism. Nevertheless, he fought against uh, political corruption, as well as large consolidated corporate interests throughout his career, which included time in Congress as a congressman, as well as terms as governor um, of Wisconsin, and finally, a long career in the U.S. Senate. And so... In my research, which I conducted, I largely relied upon archival work as well as large books containing many, many primary sources. And so I retrieved most of my sources regarding Theodore Roosevelt um, from a variety of collections of his most notable speeches and writings and quotes and what have you. And La Follette, to find further primary source material on the senator, I had to look in many archives in the Library of Congress. So I sorted through a wide variety of files from prominent speeches and platform statements to small letters that he wrote to his aides. And via these sources, I've kind of been able to construct the evolution of their progressive principles, which were seminal in shaping the progressive movement. And so fundamentally, I explore how these uh, two individuals both shaped the progressive movement and the broader trajectory of U.S. industrial capitalism and democracy, as well as responded to it. And so in my first chapter, I begin by considering how they conceived of and sought to transform American democracy. And so fundamentally, I trace through all these chapters the story of these two individuals building to the seminal moment in 1912, which I argue reshaped American democracy um, and capitalism in the ensuing decades. And 
So in my first chapter, I seek to explore how they responded to a crisis perceived to be occurring in democracy. And so Robert La Follette opposed um, what he believed to be corrupting influences in politics from the day that he decided to campaign in Wisconsin government in the 1880s to secure a local county official in Dane County. Throughout his career, he viewed the political bosses that opposed his rise to power as perverting the will of voters and representing corporate influence. And thus, he sought to rid politics of this corporate influence that he saw both in local politics as well as national legislatures. Theodore Roosevelt, in contrast, did not view political machines as negatively as his peer. Although he increasingly viewed corporate money in politics as a corrupting force, he did not uniformly seek to purge its influence throughout his political career. As a result, La Follette sought to fundamentally revolutionize the U.S. political system via instruments of direct democracy, such as the direct primary, direct election of U.S. senators, equal suffrage, the initiative, many mechanisms that we are now familiar with. Whereas Roosevelt had a far more hesitant approach to these instruments of direct democracy and sought pragmatic reform that would once again restore the, the founding fathers' representative intentions uh, as he saw them, but would not fundamentally revolutionize the U.S. political system. Ultimately, despite these significant differences in their approaches to political reform, they had dramatic overlap in the policies and overarching goals that they espoused, especially as the 1912 presidential election approached. So even though a dramatic falling out occurred in the run-up to this election between the two individuals, I believe that their underlying policy objectives allowed them to have long-term success within the progressive movement and more broadly after the progressive movement's demise in 1912, after which more states adopted progressive political reforms such as the initiative and referendum. In my second chapter, I deal with the trusts, which are large consolidated corporate interests, which La Follette especially viewed as perverting U.S. democracy. And in this moment, each man sought to fundamentally refashion the U.S. government's relationship with these corporations to assert their power over these corporations, which had come to dominate nearly every industry in the U.S. economy. Although La Follette was consistently more progressive regarding uh, these trusts, in my own estimation, Roosevelt evinced an increasingly progressive approach toward them and sought fundamentally to elevate the authority of the government to ensure that average businesses and the government could protect themselves from extortion by these corporations. Finally, in my third chapter, I discuss employment reform, which these two men consistently sought to achieve throughout their time in both local and national politics. Employment conditions had deteriorated rapidly with the rise of industrial capitalism, workers working in unsanitary situations, which were often very dangerous for long periods of time, with little collective bargaining power. Both men ultimately saw it as a moral imperative to elevate the authority of organized labor, reform the working conditions in which these workers operated, as well as achieve compensation for workers who were injured or killed in the line of service, among many other reforms. And fundamentally, um, they sought to reform working conditions in the United States rather than revolutionize them, given their belief, unlike the socialists, that you needed to maintain this industrial capitalist system and the trusts which had arisen more broadly. And so ultimately, uh, through this issue and the coalescence of these three issues, you can see how these two individuals who shaped the course of the progressive movement and thus broader American political history conceived of what democracy and employment ought to look like and thus directed the energies of the voting public as well as their own party toward achieving these ends. And ultimately, their efforts were quite seminal. There was the rise of a notion that child labor, for instance, should be prohibited. There was the notion that there should be a workman's compensation, which passed through legislatures nationally. 
um, there was a notion of protection of workers and the limit of limiting of the size of certain corporations and the implementation of democratic reforms that ultimately reshaped both the public and governmental conception of how democracy and the broader economy ought to operate in the United States in the modern age. And so that's a pretty broad (laughs) overview of what I'm getting into. No, that's great. That's really great. Thank you both. That is super interesting. I, that sounds like both of your projects sound like something that I would want to read myself. So super cool. So we already established that Dr. Correo Ochoa is the, the instructor in the senior thesis course, but you have separate advisors, right? And so I wanted to just ask you briefly, who are each of your advisors and how did you choose them? So we can start with Joseph. Yes. Yeah, so my advisor is actually Dr. Ochoa herself. <laughs> so I, I have the, the pleasure of, of working with her so when I arrived to Rice in fall 2021, I took a course with her called Black and Indigenous Politics, Black and Indigenous Mobilization in Latin America. It was an excellent course. And so from then on, I mean, I hadn't ever really taken a Latin American history course, but I just really enjoyed the subject material. I found her to be a great instructor, a great uh, mentor. She was very thorough in her critique. She improved my writing, how I engage with source material. So that was a seminar course. And so from there on, I kept on taking her classes. So I took uh, Radicals in the Americas with her in spring 2022. And I knew she'd be a great pick. I was, her and I were worked well together. I saw her, you know, if you're listening to this, Dr. Ocho, I'm forever <laughs> grateful to how much work you've put into me. Um, but that's all, all this is to say that, it, you know, you pick somebody who aligns with your interests, someone who you work well with, who gives you good feedback, you would say, and um, someone who pushes you to be better. In my, I guess, year and a half now, almost two years of, of working with her, she's always pushed me to, to do better and improve. Um, she's helped me tremendously in this search for graduate schools. So I guess you'd, you'd pick, pick your advisor, somebody you look up to, somebody who's willing to work with you, somebody who can coach well and somebody who aligns with your interests. And, of course, ask them. I think that's the biggest, the biggest uh, uh, bottom line question is if you're looking for an advisor, ask them and see if they can support you for sure. Awesome. Okay. And Oliver? Absolutely echo a lot of his points. I chose for my advisor, Dr. Caldwell, who I also met in a seminar class um, for Modern Revolutions, which was a great course that discussed the American Revolution, French Revolution, 1917 Russian Revolution, and the revolutions of 1989. And so that course was my first true experience writing a longer research paper, um, over 20 pages. And through that class, Dr. Caldwell truly taught me to become a better writer. I had not previously learned how to develop more sophisticated arguments that were especially clear and well broken out um, and really grounded in primary source materials. Um, And he was able to push me to become a better writer both through his feedback as well as discussions. And I found that for me, to be able to understand my own arguments, I must be able to talk about them. And I found that discussions with Dr. Caldwell have been unbelievably fruitful in helping me develop my own ideas and him offering me feedback and different insights into what I could explore. And so I also took subsequent classes with Dr. Caldwell, which confirmed um, my desire to have him as my advisor. So I also took German history since 1945 and then democracy and capitalism, which is more of a 
kind of philosophical class was actually paralleled a lot of the work I've done in my thesis, interestingly. So I think fundamentally his ability, you know, for us to talk casually, talk a lot, a lot of issues, um, talk about my work and my writing more broadly and consistently offer great feedback that makes me a better writer and a better historian is invaluable. And so it just made sense for me to pick him as my advisor and it's been a great fit. Wonderful. I am very happy to hear that um, for each of you. Hey, um, my next question is um, (laughs) if you could both share one interesting historical fact that you've learned through your research. I know that's kind of an elementary school question, but I really am. I really am curious if there's a fun fact um, that that either of you want to share. Now is your time. If we could start with Oliver. Absolutely. So I've, I've learned a lot of fun historical facts, but one I've recently been thinking about was I was looking at the influence of Robert LaFollette, who's often not highly regarded in popular conscious um, for the work that he did. But interestingly, I found out that while he was chairing a committee, um, John F. Kennedy was tasked uh, with determining who were the five most illustrious uh, senators in the history of the U.S. Senate, and he picked Robert LaFollette to be among one of them. And many other quote-unquote progressives throughout the 20th century have cited Robert LaFollette as a preeminent influence on them, which I found quite interesting. That's awesome. Actually, my uh, my partner, Annie McKenzie, who's going to be editing uh, this interview, she loves John F. Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think she would mind that I'm saying this on the record. She <laughs> loves JFK. So she's when she listens to this, she's going to be super happy. Okay. okay. And Joseph, give us a fun fact. I mean, this isn't, I mean, I guess you could take take this fact. I think this is just a broad statement. Um, I think I came into this project really questioning what activism could do, especially because it's an anti-imperialist movement and because these activists would call U.S. intervention um, as part of U.S. building an empire, U.S. empire. I question how much activists could make a difference um, and really oppose um, this machine that the U.S. created over time and used to, I would argue, terrorize Central Americans. What I have found is that activists can make the difference. It's always difficult to prove how much influence activists have, but I would say if you are listening to this and you're an aspiring activist, take what previous people have done and apply it to, to today. So, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. All right, my last question, I think... Concerns all of us, um, since we're all seniors here, this is a time in our lives that is stressful and yet also exciting because we're graduating, um, thinking about grad school, thinking about possibly um, careers in history, the ways in which that we can take the experiences that we've had at Rice, such as writing theses, such as um, interacting with um, the wonderful faculty that we have in the history department and, and in other departments at Rice, and seeing how we can use that knowledge to contribute to the world and um, to build our, our future careers and interests. Um, and so my last question for each of you is, if you're considering graduate school, if you're considering ways in which historical training can um, augment your future careers, what is something that, um, what are the ways in which the honors thesis process has prepared you for that and the ways in which you think it will um, affect your future lives after graduation? Um, if we could start with Joseph. Yeah, so I think the biggest growth moment for me occurred at the very beginning when I was in the archives. I had not ever touched archival material until um, this past summer to do uh, thesis research. And if you've never been, you walk in and there's 
boxes, with folders, with documents. And although mine had been created in 2017, there was still dust on them. You're, so you're, you're opening documents that I would like, I would imagine only a few people have gone through. And because you're seeing material that isn't online, you're seeing a lot of things that a lot of like that that's entirely new, which is the coolest thing in the world, but it's also the most daunting thing in the world because you only have a set amount of days there. And while I was researching and while I was at the library for 10 days, I felt that that was simply not enough. So I remember going in there thinking I was going to take notes on what I found and realizing I could just take pictures of every single page, somehow categorize it, and then interpret it later, then I'd be fine. And that whole experience of archival material, gathering, searching, and now using it, I think has really pushed me to consider what I thought of the field, whether I could do archival research for the rest of my life. Um, I'm still thinking about that decision, but ultimately I saw how much I enjoyed it, how much fun it was. Um, using the, the archival material today, it's still organized in Microsoft OneNote. So I have Word document on one side, the documents on the other side, and I, I write from the documents. And of course, you know, that translates to another skill, collecting data, synthesizing and writing about it, of course, is a universal skill. But at least in the, the world of history, engaging with primary source material and me being able to do it kind of early. I think this is, you know, I'd like to think, you know, it's it's common throughout undergrad. Um, for me, it only, you know, only occurred in my senior year. So, I mean, engaging with the material and seeing whether I liked it or not, I think was a great step. And then generally speaking, just being able to see what how historians do history, um, I think was a was a great task, and I'm, I'm I'm grateful the history department provided me with the opportunity to do so. Absolutely, thank you so much, um, and Oliver, go ahead. So my path is still not precisely determined, but I think that this entire process has been one of the most rewarding experiences of anything I've done in my life. Uh, quite frankly, I mean, I think it has taught me what I am able to construct, um, I suppose, I guess for lack of a better word, when I put my mind to it, I think prior to writing an honors thesis, I didn't know how to construct an overarching argument. And I felt that there's certain points in my life where I develop a new intellectual capability that I didn't previously possess. Um, and that actually interestingly happened in Dr. Caldwell's course um, during junior year, where I felt that I'd made a breakthrough. Um, not only within my capacity as a historian, but overall in my intellectual capacities I could use in life. And I felt this experience to be very similar. Um, and I think part of it is the way I've been able to synthesize an extremely large amount of data, you know, going to collections with hundreds of thousands of documents and understanding what I need to get out of those collections and being able to do so quickly. But also being able to develop a superstructure of an argument based entirely on my own thoughts at least initially. I've never before this process grounded my work entirely in primary sources. And Dr. Caldwell, unfortunately, strongly urged me to do so, to not read the secondary sources before I fully delved in and examined and drew my own conclusions from primary sources. And so being able to do that original research and think for myself has been a truly amazing process. And I've had a lot of support from my peer, Joseph, Dr. Gray Ochoa, and my advisor, Dr. Caldwell. And being able to go through that process really 
I suppose just giving me a greater confidence in my ability to construct arguments and problems solve, develop intellectually, and continue to learn uh, throughout my life. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Oliver Hatsiera and Joseph Flores. Thank you very much for being here. And thank you, listeners, for listening to this episode. And we'll see you next time on Rice Historical Review's Cast from the Past. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much.